Welcome to Blind Squirrel Macro the Pod. Squirrel here on the morning of Tuesday the 21st of November, Melbourne time. This podcast is our usual companion to the weekly newsletter which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. The letter contains graphics, charts, memes and a multitude of links that I might refer to in this pod. It also contains for our paid subscribers our portfolio update and our review of our Acorn trade ideas. Um, the main letter, by the way, will will and this podcast will continue to remain free. I've not yet mastered audio editing software and so record it in a single take. So as ever, please forgive any stammers or stumbles. And again, before we start, the usual message from legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any investment decisions, for heaven's sakes, don't listen to a cartoon rodent. Please talk to a financial advisor. Now, with all this talk of hard, soft and no landings when discussing the US economy and elsewhere, this this week's letter was titled Sticking the Landing. But before diving into a light dose of economics, we should talk about Jim Chanos. The irony of that legendary short seller, the slayer of Enron, the tormentor of Elon Musk, announcing the closure of his hedge fund the week after I wrote a love letter to the short selling community with last week's review of the Dumb Money movie is not lost on your squirrel. Now, Jim Chanos picked up some pretty spectacular sculpts in his 38-year run. He's obviously most famous for his uncovering of the fraud at Enron. I still remember being asked by Korean utility company management teams back in the late 90s about how they could be a bit more like Enron. I think they're after the valuation. Now, fortunately, I was never really able to say anything particularly constructive. Um, something, something, active trading business, something, something, something. Anyway, it's tough not to agree with Chanos's current list, or at least his last disclosed short bets. It contains some of my very favorite pet thieves. That's Coinbase, Robinhood Markets, and the data set of REITs like Equinix and Digital Realty. He also shares some similar scar tissue to me this year. Unfortunately for him, his compliance department allowed him to be short NVIDIA. As well as celebrating a great great career, there's been much excited speculation in the value investor community that this move might mark a major turning point in the post-financial crisis dominance of growth investing over all other style factors. Parallels have been drawn with the legendary Julian Robertson, returning investor funds from his Tiger Management hedge fund in March of 2000. Now, some of the Tiger Cubs that he seeded thereafter became big-time growth investors, but Julian was an old-school value guy who could not make sense of the dot-com mania of the late 1990s. I actually still find it completely remarkable to think that Chase Coleman's Tiger Global, yes, sharing the name, the rapacious owner of profitless unicorns in public and private markets, is it actually hails from the same stable. It's kind, of, it's kind of remarkable. Anyway, hopium is a very powerful drug for the value investment community. I'm probably guilty of a little bit of that too. The news also happened to coincide with Friday's yet again worthless expiry of another of the squirrel's failed attempts at shorting Tesla, this time with a put spread. It's truly fitting, given that Chainos is one of the EV company's most vocal bears. Apparently Musk and his retinue of flying monkeys have been crowing throughout the weekend. I wouldn't know. I have them all on mute. This small Tesla position was one of the last remaining bearish bets I've got in my equity book, as large cap tech stocks continue to pull the market towards fresh highs for the year. 
As ever, narratives need to be found to justify the price action, and we're circling back to the landing debate, specifically that rarest of unicorns, the famed soft economic landing. The one from the mid-1990s is, by the way, the only one in my lifetime, and I'm getting on. Now, T.S. Lombard's Dario Perkins made my day, and as well as his own, clearly, last week, when he produced a chart demonstrating just how popular soft landing narratives become just ahead of the reality of an actual recession hitting. According to Bank of America's latest fund manager survey, nearly three-quarters of their clients now expect a soft or no-landing outcome. For the US economy. Early autumnal concerns around risk assets have absolutely evaporated. Volatility has collapsed and the Santa Claus rally is on like Donkey Kong. The famous CNN greed and fear index has bounced from extreme fear to greed in less than a month. Option market positioning, by that I mean the put-call ratio, is particularly complacent. The strength of this rally in risk assets, with the notable exception of crude oil, which appears to be telling a completely different economic story, has forced a tactical retreat from our bearish positioning in profitless tech stocks and an implementation delay in our big short PE trade idea. Frankly, we're we're glad to have stayed out of trouble and cheered up by the fact that this rally may end up giving us much better entry levels on those trades. So are these recent moves simply a Pavlovic reaction to a collapse in the misery index? But by that, I mean the sum of countries' unemployment and inflation rates. Now, these are sharply down from their recent highs. With a changing government on offer to 41% of the world's population in 2024, and by the way, that represents 80% of global market cap and 60% of global GDP, this could not come at a better time for incumbent politicians. Inflation rates are indeed falling, for now. It may be enough to get the POM market temporarily excited, but the squirrel is pretty sure that this data doesn't fool the electorate. Dario Perkins again, I quote, Even if inflation settles down at 2%, the public are still going to feel pissed off about the price gains of the last three years, and it doesn't matter if wages kept pace, which they didn't, by the way. I'm not sure why why economists find this attitude so surprising. Maybe they get, need to get out a bit more. Yeah, and when it comes to employment, surely the true impact of the past couple of years' interest rate hikes is yet to be fully reflected in the numbers. The Squirrel is keeping a close eye on potentially significant revisions to these job numbers in the coming months. Anyway, as the holidays approach, fund managers' inboxes are filling up with 2024 market, market outlook pieces. At the risk of oversimplifying, the broad market narrative from the sell side points to 1. Falling inflation and bond yields, 2. A weaker dollar, and 3. A mild or even non-existent recession. Now, the funny thing about consensus views is they have an uncanny habit of not playing out. Right now, equity and bond markets are at the mercy of the year-end performance chased by active managers, as well as some strong systematic fund flows from corporate buybacks, passive savings, that sort of 401k plans and pension plans, and also structured product hedging activity. It's a pretty heady liquidity cocktail to bet against, so we're not. Now, in saying this, I was sensing some ghosts from this time last year, so much so that I actually bothered to take a look at exactly what I was writing about this time last year in November. It turns out that narratives rhyme. In a piece, I was even quoting Dario Perkins again. 
and he's going to think I'm a stalker. Anyway, the opening piece to my piece on November the 14th, 2022, opened up like this. The squirrel would never pretend to be a formally trained economist. Tick. But it was a CPI week last week, and we cannot write a whole piece on crypto and FTX. Lombard's Dario Perkins dryly observes that our inboxes are about to be inundated with 2023 outlook pieces, promising lower but sticky inflation, weak growth and a mild precession, 40% chance, and central banks hiking a little further before pausing for most of the year. There, I saved you the time. Gosh, it's pretty uncanny um, how similar that feels to this time last year. And also goes to show just how, 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 um, how these outlook pieces tend to be proven wrong almost immediately. This is a traditionally dangerous time of year to be fading market strength. This time last year, a similarly soft inflation print had just twigged, triggered a two-day 10% rally in the Nasdaq and had started to get hashtag silver squeeze trending again on Twitter. Again, that feels pretty eerily familiar. With hindsight, we now know that markets were then in fact most probably reacting to a massive injection of global central bank liquidity released into respons in response to the UK's gilts crisis. What perhaps even more prosaic reality are the narratives seeking to explain this time around? In 2022, I made the expensive mistake of being sceptical around the year-end rally, risk rally in tech. Not this time. I've got no intention of trying to fight this breakout in long duration equities. And in fact, this time, I've actually got a decent sized position in uranium and uranium miners. I guess that these uranium miners are the ultimate duration assets since most of them will never actually build their mines. Although this is a commodity specific special situation, the sector has a habit of attracting, well, we'll call it politely, the faster type of money. A general risk-off event would probably be very unhelpful to the U308 cause. Traditionally, the performance of uranium equities has always been highly, highly correlated with movements in the Nasdaq. If you look at a rolling correlation analysis, it lo does look as though this cor correlation is finally starting to break down. Now, I hesitated before writing up a, a, a uranium idea back in February. Back then, I wrote... It's an amazing macro-slash-fundamental story that has an almost perfect track record as a heartbreaker of a trade. The great uranium short squeeze is always just around the corner. It does, however, feel that the themes are now finally lining up. And they have had a good run. Cameco closed up on Friday, up nearly 100% on the year, and the broader sector is up around 60%. Now, clearly, the team at Sprott managed to enrage the market gods by launching their junior uranium miners ETF, that's URNJ, back in February. It immediately corrected 20%. But otherwise, uranium is along with Orange Juice Futures, one of the few standout commodity stories of 2023. Away from equities, we have no position in developed market fixed income for the time being. Last year, we played the bounce in TLT from the post-UK guilt crisis lows into the new year. We executed something very similar this year in 30-year um, futures options, again from the October lows, but we're out of those trades now. We remain pretty unexcited by long-duration fixed income, but we are now working on a new acorn for, for paid subscribers. The focus of this one will be on the front end of the curve this time. 
Anyway, that's all we all for this week on the pod. Um, this week's written report, which you can find on the website, also contains the Acorn review and portfolio update for my wonderful new paid subscribers, hint, hint, and covers uranium in much more detail, plus ags. We've had a good week in soybeans and an even better start to this week. Um, energy, offshore, private equity as usual, Process, which is the holding company for Tencent, the Aussie dollar, and China, India. Please find out more about the, blind, about the squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Squirrel Macro. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Squirrel out. <laughs>